Um, this morning, I want to before I get into our text, I want to just give a warning. Okay, so this is a sermon that comes with a warning, and um, it's not that big of a deal, but it's important because I want to warn you about the danger of familiarity. The danger of familiarity. You know, you become familiar with something, it can actually be a little dangerous because you can stop noticing or you can start taking it for granted. I'll give you a quick illustration of this. Um, a couple weeks ago, I went to lunch and I was walking around the backside of my car and I saw this right here was plugged into my trailer light outlet on the back of my, by my trailer hitch. And I thought, that's so, that doesn't look right. Like, what is that? And, um, and I actually started to think like, has it always been there? You know, I don't, I like, I don't have a boat. I don't have a trailer. So I never think about my trailer hitch. I just, just pass it off. It didn't seem right. And so uh, come to find out that this was actually, it was just this part that was plugged in. This part was uh, zip tied up underneath my car. Now what this is, is this is a, um, a horn that plugs into your trailer light. And so the way trailer lights work, right, is you put the, the, the brake lights on the back of your trailer. And so when you push your brake, those lights go off and you're pulling a trailer so people know that you're slowing down and you're braking. What this does is every time you push your, your brake, a horn goes off, right? So this horn from underneath your car, and so you push your brake and you, you're looking around to see where, who's honking at me, right? Now, thank God it didn't work on my car, um, but I knew there's only one person on this planet who could be responsible for this. And so I came back to work. I went into Neil's office. I said, Neil, your little, your little hijinks didn't work. Um, and he was, he was sad. What's funny about this is actually, he told me, he told me kind of the origin story of this. This was actually made by Drew Miles. Drew's a home group pastor here. He's on the board. Um, he's plugged in. He's a friend of Neil and I's. And he said that, that <laughs> Neil said one day he walked out, Drew, Drew had made this and, um, and he had tried to put it on Neil's car like three different times, but Neil wasn't around. And so um, what's, what's funny is that <laughs> Drew, like, like several weeks ago, uh, had shoulder surgery, right? It wasn't a major surgery, but he was going to go under. And, you know, if you ever have a situation like that, you want to make sure your, you know, your house is in order, uh, make sure your will is right, all that kind of stuff. But Drew, the one thing he wanted to do before he possibly died was to prank Neil, okay? So he wanted to make sure that got done. So he ended up giving it to Jeremy Chan, and uh, he said, Jeremy, I need you to put this underneath uh, Neil's car. Now, it didn't work on Neil either because Neil walked out to his car. He sees Jeremy underneath his truck trying to put it on, and he says, uh, can I help you? And, uh, and Jeremy said, oh, I'm so mad. I didn't want to do this in the first place. Like, how do you get me to be a part of it? Now, Drew had tested this out on another guy who goes to church. He works for Drew, um, Zach. And Zach Hayes, uh, he, he put it on, on Zach's car. And so Zach's driving away from work and he just hears honk, right? And he's like, what's going on? Drives a little further, presses his brake, honk. He pulls over. He's like, who's honking at me? What's going on? He can't figure it out. All the guys from the shop are out laughing at, uh, at, um, at Zach and he didn't think it was funny. So anyways, there's, there's two points. There's two points I want you to come away with this from, which is one, um, this says, don't throw away, pay it forward, okay? So... If you, if you happen to encounter this in your life, you know who to come talk to. Um, it's not me. I'm going to give it back to Neil. He can uh, put it on somebody's car. Uh, the other thing, though, is, is how easy it is to take for granted, right? Things that we're, that we're familiar with. And so, so I, hadn't, I didn't even recognize it right away because I'm just so familiar with the back of my car, I don't even think about it. Well, that's, when it comes to, to certain things, that can be really dangerous. When it comes to your Christianity and the Bible, familiarity can be a dangerous thing. This morning, we're going to talk about maybe the most famous verse in the Bible. 
Um, a verse that, that you likely have memorized and non many non-Christians have memorized. It's worked its way into popular culture, into meme culture. It's, it's the, wor- the verse John 3.16. And because you're so familiar with it, because we're so familiar with it, there's a danger of us turning off our brains. And so I want to challenge you not to do that this morning. I wanna, we're going to go through this very carefully, and I want you to be open-minded to look at it with fresh eyes and not just take it for granted. I'm going to read it to you right now. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This verse has been called the Bible in a nutshell, or the gospel in just one verse. It's only 25 words long in English. It's 23 words in the original Greek. And this morning, I want to break into six parts. So let's read it together really quick, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This verse is so central to what we understand in Christianity. It's so central to what the gospel is, what the good news is. Now, what you might not know is the context, the broader context of of how we understand this verse. And, And it really is part of a conversation that Jesus is having with a man named Nicodemus. We find the beginning of that conversation in John chapter 3, starting verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Now that's really important. He came to Jesus by night. We're going to come back to that in a second. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We don't know a lot about Nicodemus from the Bible, but church tradition tells us that Nicodemus was a very powerful man. He's one of the most powerful men in Israel. It says that he was the third most wealthy man in all of Jerusalem. That he was a respected teacher among the people. He was a Pharisee and possibly part of the Sanhedrin. He was prominent and he was well thought of. And it says that he came to Jesus by night. Now, what you have to understand is at this point, Jesus is persona non grata in in Jerusalem. He is despised by the religious elite. He is despised by the powerful people in Jerusalem. Nicodemus' colleagues would have been been disgusted by Jesus because he didn't conform to their structure. He challenged their teaching. He challenged their, their strict religious hierarchy. He was an uneducated Galilean. He was unsophisticated. He was an outsider. He spent his time with common people. He spent his time with sinners. And because of of the way that he he presented and the problems that his ministry was bringing to the the religious elites, to the the priests and the the Pharisees and the, the rabbinical structure, Jesus was despised. And yet, for Nicodemus, you would have thought it would have been easy for him to dismiss Jesus. To dismiss him as a heretic or, or as, as a fraud or as some kind of person to avoid. And yet there was something alluring about Jesus. Something, it was like a riddle that Nicodemus couldn't solve. Jesus didn't, wouldn't easily be dismissed. He wouldn't easily be fit into those categories. And so Nicodemus came under the cover of darkness at night. He didn't want, any to see one. He didn't want anybody to see him because he didn't want to be embarrassed. But he also had to know. Who is this man? Now, what's interesting is he comes to Jesus and he he says this greeting. He says, good teacher, I know that you're from God because only someone from God could do these miracles and these signs that you've been doing. 
It says, and Jesus answered him and said, surely I tell you, one must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Now notice, Nicodemus didn't ask him a question, but Jesus understood what was on Nicodemus' heart. Jesus understood, he read, that, he, he read Nicodemus' mind. He knew that Nicodemus wanted to know who was Jesus really. Was he really truly the son of God? And so John 3.16 is part of this conversation where Jesus is explaining to him these spiritual truths, the spiritual answers to questions that Nicodemus had. We're going to start with the very beginning of John 3.16. We're just going to look at verse 16. We're going to start in the beginning. It says, for God. You know, any right conversation about the deepest and most important things in life begins with God. Who is God? A.W. Tozer wrote, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. God is the first cause. God is the, the uncreated. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the first and the last. For us to have, uh, know anything about us, ourselves, and our place in the world, why we exist, any right conversation has to start with God. And yet in the last century and a half, the reality of God has been challenged like never before. As we've moved into the modern age, the world has become to rely on materialistic frameworks to understand the world and our place in it. German philosopher in the 1880s, Friedrich Nietzsche, famously said, God is dead. What he meant for it is we no longer need God to explain the world, to explain who we are. We have enough, we've learned enough scientifically and philosophically to have more sophisticated understandings of who God is. Unguided evolution has come to be accepted as the answer for the origin of life and the origin of the universe. That our existence is the result of random, unguided chance. And the obvious conclusion is that there is no intrinsic meaning or purpose to our lives. And yet, for all of our knowledge, all of our technological advancement, all of our scientific reasoning, all of our philosophical arrogance, our psychological and therapeutic solutions, we are by so many metrics worse off than we were 150 years ago. Now, don't get me wrong. We have things that technology can offer us. We have cars. We have modern medicine. We have clean water. We have air conditioning. There's a lot of great technological advancement that I'm very grateful for. And yet it kind of can offer a, a, a thin veneer over the truth and reality that the deepest questions of our lives, we are less in touch with now today than we have been before. We have the breakdown of the family. We have an increase in, in crime. We have um, uh, people, an increase in anxiety and fear and depression. We have so many people that are on, on, on behavioral uh, medicines in order to, to affect their mood and help them. So many, by so many measurable things, we are more lonely, more isolated, less in touch with the deep questions we were 150 years ago. When it comes to the meaning of life, our purpose, our destiny, do I matter? How should I live? The questions are spiritual and our modern philosophies have very little to, to, to answer us on them. According to them, there is no transcendent purpose. There is no meaning. There is no design. Their metaphysical claims are so preposterous about the nature of reality. They are, are, are so ridiculous. They are so silly 
to think that we just exist on this planet with no purpose and no design, and yet we are beset on all sides by indicators that, that we are here for a reason, that there is an order, there is a purpose to it. That the only right response to any serious person would be just to laugh it off. And yet, those are the philosophies that are ensconced in our, our highest houses of education. In our, in our most significant establishments, that's the worldview that's predominant. For many people, religion and Christianity in particular is seen as old-fashioned or outdated. Christianity is increasingly viewed with hostility. Many people dismiss it out of hand, and yet very few people even understand what our claims are. But what's interesting is that Christianity offers the most robust answers to the deepest questions that we have about life. Why are we here? Where do we come from? What's next? Is there a God? Can I know him? Christianity teaches that we are made by God for a purpose in his image. And they were not fully whole until we have a right relationship with them. It's been said before that, that God designed us with a God-shaped hole in our heart and we'll never know true satisfaction, we'll never know true fulfillment until that, that puzzle piece fits into our heart. And yet we try to fill it with all kinds of other things. We try to make up our own significance or popularity or, or, or sex or, or being loved or being respected or making money or things. And yet none of them fit. And so for many, life just is about trying to push as many things in there as possible and yet we're still left, left unsatisfied. It's those questions, questions about eternal significance that caused Nicodemus to sneak out of his house in the middle of the night and to go inquire about Jesus for God. The next part of John 3.16 says, so love the world. So love the world. Well, we began with the understanding that, that God is a reality. The next question is, what is this God like? Who is he? Many people have the conception that God is some kind of amorphous force. Maybe there's something out there that seeded life or kicked off something in the beginning, but, but he certainly is detached from our everyday reality, from our everyday life. He's distant. He's cold. He's hidden. He's not involved in my everyday life. That if he is real, he's unknowable and silent. But that's not what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches that God is knowable, that he is speaking, that we have to learn how to hear him. Some people think that, that God is capricious or angry. Yet here it says that, that God's motivation towards us is love, that, that for God so loved the world. He's a loving father. The Bible teaches that he's merciful and long-suffering, that he's full of compassion, that his heart is for you. 1 John 4, 16, it says that God is love. In fact, he's the very essence of what love is. He's the very definition of what true love really is. And it says that his motivation towards dealing with his children is that he so loved the world. And what did that love compel him to do? It says he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now it's interesting. Remember, this is a conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. And Jesus is the son that the father gave, right? The Bible teaches that God is one, but that he's triune. 
that he exists eternally in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it says, the Father so loved the world that he gave Jesus, his only begotten Son, to come to, to the earth. The Bible teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin. He was born to Mary. He was born as a little baby. He, he raised his whole life, and the Bible says that he lived his entire life as a sinless human. And then it says that he was crucified and he died on our behalf. This is, this is difficult for us to understand. Look what it says in Romans 5, 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus came to die in our place because of our sin. You know, sin is a difficult thing to understand because we have grown up when we have. A lot of us think about ourselves as that we live in a time of, of self-love, Okay. You are special, you are unique, you are wonderful. I love what Charles Simpson said. He said, I grew up before um, self-esteem was a thing. I saw, yeah, because we, we've lived in a time where, where we have been raised on a steady diet of therapeutic deism. This idea that it, the whole world is about you. It's why everyone wants to be famous and everyone, everyone thinks they're good. I have a, um, a, a, a workshop I used to do with some of our students and we just would practice sharing our faith with people. What we do is we take them down to the beach and they start a conversation. They say, hey, I'm here with a group from my church and I'd like to know if I can ask you a couple questions. And they start by asking, what do you believe about God? And they have a conversation about that. And then they, the, the whole thing though is to really get to this one question. The one question is, if you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? And nine and a half people out of 10 always say the same thing. They say, well, I've been a pretty good person. See, we tend to think about ourselves as good people. The vast majority of people think about themselves as good people. They think, you know, I have, if, if, as long as the good things I've done outweigh the bad things, like there's a scale, I'll be all right. Or we compare ourselves to other people. And we say, you know, I'm, I'm better than them. Or, you know, and we think because we, we helped an old lady and we volunteered and, and we shared our food one time, that, that, that somehow that has earned God's favor with us. That God must be pleased with us. As long as we avoid the really big sins like, like murder and rape and robbery, as long as we avoid those, we're probably okay. Yet that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches something very radical, very extreme. In fact, it can be offensive to us to understand what the Bible really teaches, but look what it says in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. Have sin. And then, then it says in James 2:10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. What that means is that if you have kept all of God's law perfectly, except for one part you stumble in, the Bible says you're guilty of transgressing the entire law. You're guilty of all of it. I, I was I was a youth pastor for 20 years, so I want to just give you a quick illustration of this that I used to give to my students. This will be on the screen for you guys that are on the other side. Now, I want you to imagine that this is your life. This water represents you and all of your righteousness and all the good things you've ever done. And I want to show you something. I want to just, just say, look, what that verse says is that you, if you have broken one part of the law, you're guilty of all this. So just if I just put one drop of this dye in the water, 
I want you to see what happens to it. Now, this is, this is just one drop in what is about two gallons full of water. And you can see in just a few seconds, this dye is beginning to move throughout the entire water. Now, look, that would be if you had just transgressed one part of the law, if you sinned one time. But how many of us have ever sinned one time? How many, of us, how many of us have ever just told one lie? No, we, if we're honest, we've told hundreds of lies, thousands of lies. What do you call someone who tells thousands of lies? A liar. We're a liar. We're liars. How many, don't raise your hand for this part, but how many of you have ever had a lustful thought? I'm just one. The Bible says if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. No one in this room has only done that one time. We're all guilty of doing that many times, and so all of us are adulterers. How many of you ever used the Lord's name in vain? The Bible says the name of the Lord is holy. It's a great sin. You're a blasphemer. You use the Lord's name in vain. We've all done that multiple times too, and so we stand before the Lord lying adultering, blasphemers. We're guilty before a holy God. How many of you guys have ever put a horn on the back of your friend's car? <laughs> that one's for Neil. And so what happens though is this dye is diffusing in the water, okay? So what that means is that, that the way, I'm just gonna speed it up really quick, but dye, the way it works is it is the molecules of the dye become evenly and perfectly distributed with the water molecules in here. So much so that it's actually inseparable. So this water is now stained. And if I asked you to come up here and I asked you, hey, can you separate out the molecules, the water molecules and the dye molecules, you won't be able to do it. You can't do it. This water is now stained. Actually, you can do it. I, I read about that if you boil this water, the water will evaporate and the dye will be left. But the water's gone, okay? There's no real way to do it. There's no real way to separate this out. This problem is here to stay. This stain is not going away. The Bible teaches that compared to a holy God, that our stain of sin is permanent and there's no amount of scrubbing. There's no amount of separation that we can do. There's no amount of good things that you can do to take away the stain. That you're stuck. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave him to do what? He gave him to do what was impossible for us, to come and change us. And so Jesus poured out his life in order that we might be saved. This is just bleach. I'm gonna pour it into this water. What you're gonna see is that what was impossible for us to get the stain out this bleach is gonna do for this water. That Jesus came and he died on the cross in order to save us from our sin. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That Jesus was the one who came to set us free. Jesus was the one who came to take away the penalty for our sin. Jesus was the one who came to do what was impossible. 
And so what should our response be? Here's, listen, this is a really important response. So it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, we must respond in faith. We must respond in faith to Jesus and we must believe in him. You know, the word believe is a, is a tricky word. The word believe can just mean a mental assent, like a mental agreement. That's not the word that's being used here. The Greek word here is pistuo. And it means to believe that causes you to entrust yourself to that belief. To believe in a way that gives you, compels you to do an action. Compels you to buy in. Compels you to be committed. There's a, a story about the greatest tightrope walker of all time, the great blonde, and he lived in the late 1800s. And he, he did all these amazing tightrope walks. He would walk from building to building and stretch it out across all these things. But one of the most famous things he ever did was he stretched out a rope across Niagara Falls, 150 feet above it. And he walked back and forth across it. And these, these crowds would gather. He was able to, to carry his manager on his shoulders all the way across. He rode a bicycle across. In fact, he took a wheelbarrow full of potatoes across it. And when he got to the side that time, he said, he said, how many of you guys think I could take a human in this wheelbarrow? And everybody's hands shot up because they, they were so amazed. So this guy could do anything. So he dumped out the potatoes. He said, who wants to get in? <laughs> and nobody got in. Nobody volunteered, right? But Pastillo, the kind of belief it's talking about here is the kind of belief that says you've got to get in the wheelbarrow. You can't just say, yeah, I believe that from a distance. It's the, it's the kind of belief that causes you to step out in action to trust and believe. And so the fact that Jesus came and he offers us setting us free, he offers us taking the stain out of our life. What we couldn't do, he can make us pure again. He could give us his righteousness so we can stand before the Lord. But it only is accessed by those who believe in faith. John makes this really clear throughout the, throughout the book of John. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 20.31, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John 1, 11, 12, he came to his own and those who were his did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. We must receive him. We must come to him. We must believe in him. Listen to me, please. What Jesus has done for you must be met with your belief and faith. So often we've heard people say that, that God's love has no strings attached, that it's unconditional. I want to tell you that it's not. It's not unconditional. The condition is you must receive him in faith. You must believe in him. Now, here's what's so shocking is that this isn't reserved just for good people. In fact, look, it says, whoever believes in him. Anyone, Jesus is after a group from all categories of life, from all walks of life, all geographic locations, all classes, all genders, both genders, all colors, all personality types. 
He's after the old. He's after the young. But I want to tell you, look, he's after those in here who believe there's only two genders, and he's after those in here who believe there's a bunch of genders. He's after everyone. He's after the old. He's after the young. He's after the religious. He's after the non-religious. He wants people from good families. He wants people from bad families. He's after the socias, and he's after the greasers. <laughs> Romans 10, 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If anyone will come to God in humility and believe on him, they will be saved. You cannot be good enough for him, and you certainly cannot be bad enough for him. There, listen, listen to me. There is no one in this room who has been so rebellious or so wicked or so offensive to God that God will not receive you as a son or a daughter. Whoever believes in him will be saved. That's what's so shocking about what the gospel teaches, but I want to tell you, the stakes could not be higher. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Listen, the Bible's clear. This temporal life is not all that there is. Death is not the end of your existence. When it says here, you shall not perish, it doesn't mean physical death. It means eternal death. The Bible teaches there's a next life and that what we're talking about right now is life and death. It really is heaven and hell. And I have to tell you, outside of Christ, we all stand here condemned. Every last one of us. It's not that what you do from here on out is gonna matter in your life. It's not that, okay, if you start, you make a decision, I will be better. I promise to work harder. I promise to try more. That's not the situation. You are a dead man walking or you are a dead woman walking apart from Christ. Two verses later in John 3, 18, Jesus says, he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. We're condemned already apart from Christ. The Bible teaches it, that there's a day coming when you die. It's not like a computer just shuts off or gets unplugged. But when you die, you are gonna stand before the God of the universe. And there's gonna be a courtroom and he's the judge and you are gonna stand before him. And you are not gonna have any character witness you could be able to call on. You're not gonna be able to, to present evidence of your good deeds. You are gonna stand there condemned. And if you look over to your right and you do not see as your defense attorney, Jesus himself, then you are gonna be cast out of God's presence. You'll be found guilty and you'll experience eternal separation from God. But if you look over to your right on that day and Jesus is standing with you, here's what's gonna happen. He's gonna say, uh, judge, sidebar, Hey, Dad, uh, he's with us. He's going to go back. Case dismissed. You are, the Bible says, that you are going to stand before God with the righteousness of Jesus covering your sins. That when, when, when God the Father, the judge of the universe, looks at you, he is going to see the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Here's why, because Jesus is able to take the stain out. Jesus is able to do what you could not do. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Here's what I want to tell you about that eternal life. It's just not for the next life only. The eternal life is for this life now. It's the abundant life. It's the good life that God offers you. Look, there's people in this room, you have not surrendered your life to Jesus. And I want to tell you that you're going to have an opportunity this morning to do just that. But I want to tell you something else. If you surrender your life to Jesus, it's not that your life is going to automatically get amazing. It's not that all your bills are automatically going to get paid or your ex-girlfriend's going to want to come back, you know, um, or, or, you know, all your relationship with your physical body is going to be totally fixed. In fact, sometimes following Jesus makes your life harder. I want to be, I want to be straight up with you. But, but I will tell you this. You will have a peace and a joy in God's presence that you do not have right now in your life. Look what it says in, in Psalms 16.11. It says, In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The God of the universe, he doesn't say, I'm just going to fix everything, I'll take everything away, your life's going to be totally smooth sailing. He says, I will be with you in it. I will stand with you. I will walk with you. And I will tell you that there is nothing greater than being in the presence of God. I invite the band up here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. And I want to check back in on Nicodemus because what's weird about this section in John chapter three is that we don't get the end of the story. In fact, it doesn't tell us how Nicodemus responded. It just is this conversation. Nicodemus asks a couple questions and Jesus explains these spiritual things and then the Bible just moves on. We don't get anything else about what, it, what, it, what happened to Nicodemus. He's mentioned two other times in the Gospel of John. One time in, in John 7, it's kind of obscure. We don't get a lot of information from it. But then we find he makes a reappearance at the end of the Gospel of John. At this point, Jesus has been arrested. He's been put on a sham trial. He's been beaten. He's been scourged. His body has been ripped apart. He's been laid down on a cross. He's had nails driven through his hands and through his feet. He's been raised up as a mockery. He's been mocked by soldiers. He's been a, had abuses hurled at him. And he's, he sat there for six hours until he breathed his last. And then we get this one little mention of Nicodemus. John 19, verse 38, it says, After these things, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, who at first was ashamed to be seen with him, who at first was embarrassed and was worried about what other people were gonna think. But Nicodemus, who had come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, and it's the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. 
If you look at, Michelangelo has a sculpture of this and, and there's other uh, medieval period um, paintings of this. And what you'll always see is you'll see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus carrying the body of Jesus to his burial place. And sometimes, sometimes Joseph of Arimathea won't even be there. It'll just be Nicodemus. This person who was ashamed and embarrassed but who had come to believe and now publicly is receiving the body of Christ. And what, what I don't think Nicodemus understood at that moment, he was honoring Jesus as Messiah, but I'm sure he was confused on what was gonna happen next. As he, as he filled that body and wrapped it in linen cloth and, and filled it with all 100 pounds of spices and myrrh, incredible weight, incredible, uh, ex, incredibly expensive. They placed him in this tomb, but three days later, Jesus was gonna raise up out of this tomb. And he's gonna offer not just Nicodemus, but all those who call on the name of the Lord, all those who have had the, salvi- the saving work of Jesus in their life, who have had their stain removed, the Bible says he will raise him with him on the last day. That's what we were celebrating here this morning with the baptisms. We we're celebrating people who have come to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And the Bible teaches us that what happens in this baptismal is a symbol, is a symbol of what has happened in our lives. where We have died to our old way of life. So we come in the water as our old person. And we're dunked, it's like we're going into that grave with Jesus. And as we come out, we come out to a new life, to a a clean life, to a life where all of our sins have been washed away and we've been born again. I wanna say, listen, that offer is to anyone who will call on the name of the Lord. Anyone who will believe in him. So listen, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but I wanna tell you, you might've been invited here this morning because we told everybody that we're gonna be doing a salvation message. We're going to be explaining the doctrine about what the Bible teaches about being born again, about becoming an, a Christian. And so you might have been tricked into coming here this morning for that reason. <laughs> but I hope you understand, and here's what we believe. We believe that, that it wasn't just an invitation, but that there's many people that God has been working on. It wasn't just here this morning as you heard the word, but that God is, has been working on people in their life, sending other people in your life, revealing new things to you, showing you new things. He's been speaking to you. You might not have known it. You might not have heard his voice audibly, but he has been speaking to you. And this morning, you're gonna have that invitation to receive the Lord Jesus in faith, to come to him. So in a minute, I'm gonna pray, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna tell you real quick what I'm gonna pray, and I wanna invite you to pray along with me. If you this morning want to Believe on Jesus Christ. The kind of belief that is going to compel you to live for him. We're, we're, we're not trying to be emotionally manipulative or, or get you hyped up or anything like that. Like, I, it's a serious thing to give your life to the Lord. But what I want to say is this morning, if you want to do that, we're just going to pray a prayer. The prayer is going to go like this. Lord, I love you. I believe that you died for my sins. Will you forgive me? That's basically it. And if that's you, I want to invite you to pray that prayer. So you can just pray it silently with me. But and then in a little bit, we're going to have a ministry time. We do this every single week. It's not special this week, but we're going to have people come forward and they're going to stand here and kneel. If you stand, people are going to, we have a ministry team. People are going to come pray for you. I want to encourage you. If you pray this prayer, I want to encourage you to come forward. You, that person will be able to pray for you and encourage you and share some things that are going to be important in your next step with the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I love you. 
God, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. Jesus, will you forgive me? Lord, will you cleanse me and make me new? God, I receive you this morning as my Savior, and I receive you as my Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.